Blog Talk Radio. Time now for the Gridiron Stud Show. Well, you can be all American. I'm actually, now. I'm actually, I can do it now. You can do it now? Yeah, I can do it. But I'm trying to focus on my position. With your host, Chad Wilson. They hating on me on set. You know, yeah, I got to be in the mix. Bringing you high school, college, and NFL talk. I don't rap a discipline. Mr. You all need more discipline. True discipline. Come on, get a grip. Call us on the show today. Don't get out of my face with that crazy stuff. The number to call, 347-633-9365. If y'all got to take, y'all know that. Or you can reach us on Twitter, at GridironStud. And now, your host, Chad Friday. I hope you're enjoying your Friday. Hope you set yourself up for a good weekend. I'm here now live in the new Gridiron Stud Show studios. I hope y'all like that. Y'all like that stuff? You like that? You like that? Well, anyway, we're here on the Gridiron Stud Show, and I just wanted to start off with this. You know, the game of football, something we all know and love and uh, can really understand for the most part, uh, the game of football is comprised of a bunch of rules. Um, no one knows that more than an NFL fan, okay? Um, we're still trying to figure out what a catch is in the NFL. We're still trying to figure that whole thing out. But nevertheless, it's a game of rules. And um, I think most of us agree that the rules are put in place so that the participants in the game can be safe. makes the game safer for everyone. I think we can all agree to that point of it. Um, and from time to time, things will come up in a game like a trend. Um, you know, a trend will start where certain things start happening in the game, and um, the trend starts to become a problem. It, it, it causes a safety issue in the game, and rules and policies need to be put in place to correct the trend, to curtail some behavior, and thus make the game as safe as possible. Um, for instance, there was once a time in football where you could cut block anywhere on the field. They got rid of that rule. Uh, worse yet, you used to be able to, in the game of football, tackle someone by their face mask. Now, fortunately, there was a rule change in 1956 that made tackling by grasping the face mask illegal. Thank God for that. Uh, now, 
there had to be that rule put in place because, you know, obviously people were, were getting hurt. But prior to that time, prior to 1956, the people of that time would have had no idea what the game of football would be like in this day and age. They had no idea. They had no idea what guys would be like. Things have changed over the years in football. And thank God the rules have changed with it. The rule makers in 1956 would have found it very difficult to envision the game of football the way that it is today. Uh, it would have been tough forecast the advances in equipment, in training, the size and the ability of players participating in this game today. As such, it would have been rather difficult for them to make rules in their time that would have had to stay steadfast and unchangeable back prior to 1956 or even at 1956. Again, thank God today's players cannot legally tackle by the face mask. It might have been okay back then, but it started to become a problem, and so a rule was put in place so that the participants in the game would be safer. When I look at the raging battle that we have going on in this country right now with gun control, I can't help but think about how sports mirrors life. Gun lovers, enthusiasts, NRA members will throw up the Second Amendment at the, at the slightest hint of anyone wanting to talk about gun control. The Second Amendment reminds me of football in the early 1900s. That was, there was absolutely no way that the pro football rule makers could have envisioned uh, Calvin Johnson at six foot five, two hundred and thirty pounds, forty pounds, playing wide receiver, running a four. There's just no way they could have envisioned that. There's no way they could have envisioned a Von Miller, a Ray Lewis, or a Demarcus Weir running around on defense looking to hunt down ball carriers. As such, any rule that they tried to put in place back in those days would have had to have been reviewed now that we're in a modern era of football. There's just no way they could have made any rule back then that could hold steadfast now, like being able to tackle by the face mask. Can you imagine DeMarcus Ware being allowed to tackle people by their face mask? Can you imagine Ray Lewis being able to tackle people by his face mask? With that said, we can all appreciate the amendments to our Constitution. We can all appreciate that. And the overall function of our democracy. However, our government in 1791 could not have envisioned the sheer power of the weapons that would be made possible in 2018. Nor could they have envisioned the state of our country and predict the evil that would exist 227 years later. Again, the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791. So football is a sport that, like I said, many of us understand and love. When you think about the necessary changes that have been made to the game as time has moved forward, it's almost insane for us as a country to continue to point to the Second Amendment ratified in 1791 as a barrier to making absolutely no adjustments to our gun policies, rules, and laws in this country. So much has changed since the framers of our Constitution put down their muskets and pea shooters to sign in that Second Amendment. It's time for us to use our heads and to make this country safer for all its inhabitants, the way pro, pro football has made the game safer for the people that are participating in this game. Not often we get to do this, but let's take a page from professional football. The game has had, the rules have had to change over the years. And so that's just a little something I wanted to kick things off with today. Great show coming up. The NFL Combine has kicked off. 
Um, the running backs were on the field today, offensive line and defensive linemen. So we got 40 times to talk about and who look good and who looks like they um, may be the next pro football Hall of Famer because, you know, we can figure all that out real early from the combine and all that good stuff. I have a special guest on my show today, Father Leo Embers. I'm still calling him Father Leo. That's how I know him. But uh, he was a team chaplain for the University of Miami during my time there. He was for a very, very long time. And uh, he is going to join me on the show today. He's also with the Miami Dolphins. And uh, I'm sure if you've watched the Dallas Cowboy game during uh, the, the heyday of the Dallas Cowboys with Jimmy Johnson there, and if you've watched the Miami Dolphins during Jimmy Johnson's days there, you've seen uh, Leo Ambrose on the sidelines. And so we have him on the show today. We're going to talk to Leo Ambrose. I do also want to talk about finding your gimmick in the game of recruiting. Um, and I know it's a little bit of an unusual um, maybe headline or, or topic, but uh, we do need to talk about that today. And so we'll talk about finding our gimmick in recruiting. But let's talk about the uh, NFL Combine. It's the National Underwear Olympics, as my um, – Friend, good friend Emil Calamino will say the underwear Olympics that's going on right now. And we tend to, during this time of year, focus on things that um, are not that important. By we, I also mean NFL personnel, um, NFL media and all that. And that's stuff like 40 times and all that good stuff. We like to focus heavily on those things during this time of year and kind of ignore what guys have done on the field for the last two, three, four years. That's kind of the stuff that uh, goes on during this time of year. But, hey, it is, it is what it is. The NFL loves it. It's more publicity. The NFL has become a year-round sport, and so we have that. So what's the big news out of the uh, NFL Combine today? The biggest news is Saquon Barkley. He had himself a day, folks. Um, I think he did what he do on the bench press. 29 reps on the bench press, so he's strong. Um, vertical jump, 41. So he can jump high. And then he went out and ran a 4-4-1. He can run fast. I think his 40 time is the second fastest out of all of the running backs. So if you're going by the combine, which they often do, Saquon Barkley has cemented himself, has established himself as the first running back taken in this NFL draft. And um, I think he's probably going to hold that position. I don't see anything coming out. Um, down the road that would change that. Um, he's going to do very well in his interviews. Um, he's a high-character kid who can run fast and jump high and is strong and has some good film out there. So I don't see any reason why he would fall lower than uh, the first running back taken in this draft. Now, where would he be taken? Would it be the Giants of two? Um, what about the Dallas Cowboys? Um, not the Dallas Cowboys. What about the Indianapolis Colts? Um, they just decided that they're not going to keep Frank Gore. Uh, do they need another running back? Do they need an every down back? And someone like Saquon Barkley would certainly fit the bill there. So um, all that's left, I really think, for Saquon Barkley and those covering him and following him and talking about him um, as we get closer to the draft is which one of these teams in the top half of the draft are going to pick him up and make him a draft pick. I think that's all that's left for us to do here so far as Saquon Barkley is concerned. Um, speaking of concern, Orlando Brown, uh, former offensive tackle for the Texas Longhorns. Now, he did not have himself a day. Um, he ran a 40-yard dash. I do believe he finished it. 
Um, he might have just finished it because it took him forever to get through it. Um, and it was not pretty. I want to say a 5.82, which by anyone's standards is not good. Let me see if I can get an exact time for Orlando Brown on that 40-yard dash. But it was something like a 4.82, not good. Uh, 5.85, sorry, not 4.82. 5.85, way off on that. 5.85, 40-yard dash. And then he was also yelled at. Uh, by coaches for loping during his drills, and I think he did 14 times on the bench press. None of that's good. So Orlando Brown presents himself as a guy um, that you're going to have to do some homework on, and then what do you do about Orlando Brown's numbers at the combine? Do you ignore them? Do you take what you saw with Orlando Brown and make it the gospel or do you forget it? And if you're forgetting it, do you also just turn around and hang tough onto what Saquon Barkley did? Like, what do you do there? You're going to hold true to one guy's numbers at the combine, and you're just going to let everything go with another guy? What do you do there? So uh, an interesting dynamic. 585 is just not good in anyone's book. So... Um, yeah, Amol, you know, the New York Giants, um, if they do pass on a running back, which they sorely, sorely need, it would um, be rather crazy if they did, if they did indeed do that. But it's the New York Giants. They've not been in their right mind for quite some time now. But uh, the kind of show that he put on here, I don't think the word um, Saquon Barkley and passing on him are going to go together in the same sentence. I just don't see something like that happening. So the Giants have their shot at it. Um, and unless there's some maneuvering, you probably will be in New York Giants. We'll just have to see. So we'll just see on all that. But getting on the topic that I you know, kind of wanted to hit here before I have uh, Leo Ambrose join me here on the show, um, I want to talk about finding your gimmick in recruiting. This is the time of year um, where the kids are starting to try and position themselves for the next year. Your junior going into your senior year, your sophomore going into your junior year, you may have just played your sophomore year, you just got a taste of varsity football, and you're really trying to come out and have yourself a really big junior year. It's your junior year going into your senior year, and you're really trying to establish yourself because you um, need some offers. You need, you need to get some kind of momentum going um, in your recruiting. And so now you uh, need to establish yourself. And for some guys, that's going to be easy because you have all of the physical traits that these schools come out and they look for. And for others, it's going to be very difficult. If you've read any of the articles that I've put out, um, I think there's been one consistent theme in many of them that I put out, and that is that recruiting in this day and age right now really ends up being a beauty contest. And that is um, how do you look? That's the important part. How do you look? And so if you don't meet the look requirements, what do you do now to get yourself attention and position yourself um, in the eyes of recruiters? And what I try to tell people is find your gimmick. Self-awareness is something that's very rare in our society. Um, it's so rare, I think we can describe it as an art. As a college football recruit, though, it's uh, 
your prized possession. You have to understand yourself. Oftentimes, an elite recruit is recognized very early on in the process, eighth, ninth grade. What makes them elite? It's the things that I talked to you about. They either have unusual height or they have unusual speed. Sometimes they have both, in which case there are no doubt. The rest of the prospects are faces in the crowd, and you got to find a way to break out. So how exactly do you break out? One of the biggest mistakes that potential recruits make um, is thinking that their production on the field is going to be everything for them. They think because they rushed for 2,000 yards or they threw for 3,000 yards or they had 30 sacks or they had 10 interceptions, that, that means every college football program is going to be um, looking to offer them. That's not nearly as true as some would like to think it is. Okay, A 5'9 quarterback that throws 50 touchdowns in a season is still a 5'9 quarterback. And he's not that attractive to colleges. Let's just be honest. It doesn't matter that you threw for 50, you threw 50 touchdowns or for 3,000 or 4,000 yards. You're still 5'9. 185-pound defensive end with 30 sacks is still a 185-pound defensive end. And you're still going to be faced with the prospect of going up against 300-pound plus left tackles and right tackles in the college football game. So at 185 pounds, that just is not going to be very attractive to college programs. So when the deck, when the deck is stacked against you, what can you do? You have to find yourself a gimmick. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have a better word for it, but that's exactly what you have to do. First and foremost, all prospects should enter high school with the full intent of being a good student. Let's just eliminate that as a negative against you right off the bat. Be a good student. Try to overcome the bad grades uh, of, as a freshman uh, of your freshman and sophomore year. When you're junior, you're going to find out that becomes very, very tough to do. So start this thing off right. Okay. The more important thing is for prospects, um, if you don't fit into the category of elite, at some point you're going to have to face the fact or you're going to have to make the determination, are you a Division I football player? And if you're not, you're definitely going to need your academics to help you. So uh, a lot of football players um, that are trying to get themselves into that elite category are going to find out they just don't fit in. And so you have to find your gimmick. And what is it? Is it speed? If you're undersized, man, go get on a track team. Go run track. You need the speed, okay? You can't be average speed and below average size. I don't care what you do on that football field. It's just they're not going to be beating down your door. You can't be undersized and under speed. Just not, and then think you're going Division One. You may not even go Division Two. I think some of these kids now look at Division Two football and feel like it's a piece of cake. You might not play at Division Two. Division two coaches want to be division one coaches, and those are those are the facts. That's what they want to be. And the only way for them to become division one coaches are to recruit division one top players. So let's try our best to try and frame you up as a guy that could potentially be a division one football player, even when right off the bat you don't look like that. So like I said, if you're undersized, uh, I'd be on the track team. And you know what? You're not just on a track team so you can go run 40 somewhere. You're on a track team so you can run track times. I found this to be very true. 
college football coaches trust track times a whole lot more than they trust 40 times at games. Being able to say that you run a 10-7 in 100 meters and being able to document that through the various online um, websites that they have out there that keep track of track meets and track times um, will go a, a whole lot further than you saying you ran 4-5-1 at some scouting combine somewhere. They really do trust track. So if you're undersized, you definitely want to be running track. That is for certain. So when you're not elite, getting eyeballs when you're recruiting can have a lot to do with how you package yourself. Um, if you're an undersized quarterback, I use the example of a five foot nine quarterback that, um, you know, threw for 50 touchdowns. Okay, you're five foot nine, nothing you can do about that. The best thing you can do, the best thing that you can do is package yourself as an intelligent player. So your film, you're going to want to show in your film um, the way that you read defenses. You're going to want to show yourself going through progressions. You're going to want to show yourself as being well coached. You want to show yourself as a leader. You want to play up all those intangibles that are going to make a coach forget about the fact that you're five foot nine, or at the very least, accept the fact that you're five foot nine. Um, really get and fall in love with the intangibles that they think will allow you to overcome the lack of size when you're at the next level. Because for all these college coaches, it's just about projection. And so uh, they have to be able to see you in some kind of way being able to survive at that next level without the physical attributes that they typically go after. So now you've got to package yourself as an intelligent player. And do so with your film. And play up your academics. So if you're a high academic guy, um, 3.5, 4.0 GPA, play that up. Definitely put that out there. That's your gimmick. I'm undersized, but I'm extremely smart. So if you're going to be undersized and you think that you want to play Division I football, or you want to play Division II, you want to play college football, you better be smart. Especially at that quarterback position. That's a must anyway. But let's say that you are, um, you're not a six foot two guy. What's up, AG? Good to have you joining me here on the show. Just touching on a, a little bit of a topic that I threw out when, on your show yesterday, and that is having your gimmick, finding your gimmick when it's time to get recruited. If you're undersized, be fast. If you're an undersized quarterback, be smart. So um, you definitely need to. Find the intangibles that you possess, and if you don't have the if you don't have the size, you better be working on your intangibles. You better be working on those intangibles. You've got to find a way to make those college coaches ignore the fact that you are not their ideal height, size, weight, speed, all that. That's the first thing they're coming out there for. And when you don't possess that, now you're gonna to have to sell them on something else. And I'm telling you. The amount of yards you threw for, rushed for, the amount of touchdowns that you threw for, the sacks you had, the interceptions, that's not going to be your intangible. does not work for them. High school football is high school football. College football is college football. You lighting it up against some, uh, a bunch of teams in your, in your area that have absolutely no college, potential college football players on it, it's just not going to help your case. It doesn't really wow them like that. It, it wows them if you are, uh, you know, an elite athlete, 
they're just going to be wowed by everything. And I'm not saying that to piss anyone off. That's just the reality of it all. You don't have it like that. So now you got to find your way to package um, yourself to the colleges. And that's how that goes. So, again, if you're an undersized quarterback, be smart and play up your academics. And I mean push that forward. Push your GPA. Your film should be constructed in that manner. And you should have a good relationship with your coaches. That should be happening anyway, but that's something you're going to want to play up. That's your gimmick. You're an undersized running back, a wide receiver, should be on the track team, should be working hard on the track team, and you should be um, putting out some pretty good times. You should be working hard to put out good times because, again, I'm going to say it again, college coaches really trust track times a whole lot more than 40 times. That's just exactly how that works. They're not sure. They don't trust 40 times. They're not sure who's timing who at the uh, combines. I've seen high school coaches go to combines and time their own players. Of course your guy ran a 4-3. And college coaches know that that happens sometimes at some of these combines. Times get fudged. Shuttle times get fudged. 40 times get fudged. But if you're running track, you're not fudging track times. They're not fudging track. They're not fudging 100-meter times at the track meet, 200-meter times at the track meet. They know for sure those times are authentic, especially once you start getting into districts um, and regionals and state finals. Those times are those times. You ran a 10-7, you're fast, you ran it, and there's no playing around. So if you're undersized, skill position, you better be fast. And so... Uh, you got to find your gimmick, and there are a number of ways. And one big example I could use um, in, in finding your gimmick and is uh, Sean Shivers from Auburn. Sean Shivers is five foot six. He's not the typical running back taken by any SEC school, let alone one like Auburn. But what Sean Shivers understood is that, yes, I'm undersized, but I'm going to be one of the fastest guys in the country, which he is, ran track. Runs track. One of the fastest guys in South Florida. And so Sean Shivers signed with Auburn on signing day at five foot six. Now, if you're five foot six um, and you're an 11 4, 11 3, 11 2 guy, or you run four, six in the 40, you're not going to Auburn. You're not going to Georgia. You're not going to Florida. You're not going anywhere in the SEC. Um, and I would dare say you're not going to end up anywhere in any of the other Power Five conferences either. So it's every year I get guys that clearly are undersized or clearly uh, are under speed, don't fit any of the parameters that the schools come out looking for, and they're up in arms about the fact that they don't have, they're not getting any love from um, Division One football teams. And that's right, A.G., you're small. You better be great at something. You better be really great at something. And I'm telling you, production on the field, as much as we would like to think that would be something, is not. It's not nearly as much as you think. There was once a guy down here in South Florida playing at one of these smaller schools that had 30 sacks in a season. 30 sacks. You would think 30 sacks would get you love from all over the country. I mean, 30. Think about that. 30 sacks. He was 185 pounds. 
No Division One, uh, no Division Two, nothing. He was 185 pounds, so they knew he wouldn't get 30 sacks in Division One football. Wouldn't get 20 sacks. Wouldn't get 10 sacks. You're not going to get around 300 pound offensive tackle at 185 pounds. So it's a projection for them. So like AG saying, if you're going to be undersized, then um, you better be really great at something. Being technically good helps. That definitely helps. But you better be great at something. And um, speed would really, really help if you were able to get speed going. So um, that's a little bit on that. Feel, feel, feel free to chime in on that, um, you guys that are listening. And so now I want to bring on my guest. Um, if you've watched, if you're a fan of the University of Miami football, um, if you're a fan of uh, the Dallas Cowboys, like a couple of my friends are, if you're a fan of um, the Miami Dolphins or Jimmy Johnson, you've seen my next guest on the sidelines at some point. Father Leo, as I know him, has seen a lot in the game of football. He's definitely been on the sidelines and around some of the great programs that they've been in football. He's around the University of Miami in the heyday, and he's seen it all. And then he was uh, around the Dallas Cowboys during their uh, 90s dynasty. Then he was with the Miami Dolphins. And so there's a lot for me to speak with my next guest about. And I don't think I'm going to have enough time to hit it all. But uh, as they say, something's better than nothing. So it is with great honor I bring on my next guest, Leo Ambrose. Father Leo, can I call you that? You can call me anything you want, my friend. How you doing? Oh, don't don't open that door for me. <laughs> <laughs> as long it's as I know, I will call you a lot of things. But no, I'm uh, hey, extremely happy to to have you on the show. I'm doing great. Um, and uh, listen, I'm I'm extremely pleased to have you on the show. And like I said, I don't know about have enough time to hit on everything. That's uh, you got a lot stored up there. So I'm uh, again appreciative of you joining me on the show. Well, you know, Chad, I'll tell you what, I have been very blessed to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, When you think about it, when I first came on board at the University of Miami in 1983, and I left there 13 years later, only because my good friend, Coach Jimmy Johnson, took over as head coach of the Miami Dolphins. In between that time, when he was with the Dallas Cowboys, he used to fly me out to Dallas periodically to give the chapel and mass for the Cowboy football team. And then when he was the coach for the back-to-back Super Bowls, both in Pasadena and Atlanta, and they won back-to-back Super Bowls, I was fortunate enough to be on the sidelines. And what a memorable experience both of those events were. Yeah, and so I wanted to ask you this. You know, um, I obviously don't have Jimmy here to ask him this question. This is, uh, the, this is clearly the next best thing. So you were there for um, all of the success at the University of Miami, and you were there for the success at the Dallas Cowboys on the NFL level. What was bigger for you to be a part of? What happened at the University of Miami, or, or what happened um, at the highest level of this game? With those? those are great questions. I would say that one of the most unique aspects at the University of Miami 
was the incredible chemistry the players had that regardless of who the coach head coach was or the coaching staff, there was something instilled in the players there where they set their own bar in terms of their excellence, their attitude on and off the field, their pursuit of winning at any cost, their demands personally and collectively to be the best. When I look back on those days, that's something that even a CEO or someone owning a business would love to instill in his or her workforce, Mm -hmm. that passion for whatever they do. That was the key to the success of the University of Miami. With the Dallas Cowboys, I saw a level of competence both on the coaching staff and with the players that was I, I just stood in admiration of. I mean, consider this for a moment. All the years that Jimmy was with the Dallas Cowboys, he never once drafted an offensive lineman in the first round although it would have been interesting to see if he had stayed where Larry Allen would have gone because he turned out to be a pretty good first-round draft choice as a pro bowler. But I can tell you that I found it fascinating. We put a lot of emphasis on certain aspects of the offense, but in all those years, he never drafted an offensive lineman in the first round. In fact, Nate Newton, who played for him, was never was drafted. Yeah, and that's back in a time when uh, what did we have? Twelve rounds back. That's correct. Can you believe that? I mean, That's I was amazing. looking the other. I was looking the other day, Chad, about the number of terrific football players, Hall of Fame, some of the greatest ever to play the game, who never got drafted. Have you ever looked at that list? I'm not, but um, I know I happen to know some of the names that are on that list, and it is it is rather amazing. And again, when you consider, like a, a lot of the young folks now um, that see seven rounds, won't be as amazed to, to realize, okay, this guy didn't get drafted. But back in the day, there were 12 rounds. It's a lot of guys drafted before you or drafted instead of you. So that makes it even that Correct. more amazing. You're absolutely right. I mean, you figure there's about 350 individuals that get invited to the combine in Indianapolis. And you do the simple math that there's 32 football teams and there's seven rounds. That only means that there's 224 going to be drafted if, without, if someone's not awarded an extra draft choice because they lost someone in free agency. So on average, only 224 players are going to be drafted. So there's going to be a good number of individuals who were, went to the combine who never got drafted. So they're going to have to sign as free agents. And that's always the dilemma for anyone who wants to leave early is whether or not they're going to go in what round. Was that an intentional um, strategy by Jimmy Johnson to not draft um, offensive linemen in that, that high? What, what was the thinking for him there? You know, I can't speak for Jimmy in that regard, but when you look at the offensive line that they did have, I mean, Mark Tuanay, God rest his soul, who's not with us anymore. He was left tackle. Then you had Nate Newton, Mark Stepnoski, and to the right, uh, I can't. Oh, what's his name? Oh Lord, save me now. He used to yeah. he was with the forty nine. He was with the forty niners and then, Kevin Gogan. And then the yeah. right tackle. I'm sorry, the left tackle was. Uh, yeah, right tackle was Eric Williams. That he was a beast. But the point no, no. being, 
you have to be you have to really hit on your offensive linemen. I mean, you sure. really have to. Do, if you're not going to take them in one in the first round, you better be darn well sure that you're pretty good in those other rounds. Yeah, no, he no was question. Pretty good yeah, he was a, and he was able to do that. Um, without being able to do that, I don't think the Cowboys would have had the success that they did. Sticking with the University of Miami, uh, what are your what's your fondest memory of your time there? Oh, wow. Well, I'm one of the few people besides Arthur Francis Joseph Kehoe, who used to be the gay and assistant offensive line coach and later the offensive line coach, to have all five national championship rings. I'm one of a handful. Bobby Ravilla is one of the others. But I think some of the greatest – this is interesting, Chad, you asked me this question. The greatest times I had there were the – incredible comebacks that we had mm-hmm. at Florida state when we sure. won in 87 mm-hmm. in Michigan in 1988, when we were down by 19 points in the big house in right. Michigan and in Arbor, we're down by 19 points with 12 minutes left. And Carlos Huerta comes back and we win with three seconds left to go on the clock and beat them 31 30. Those were those were some of the most memorable games I've ever been in in my life because the emotions just went clearly off the chart. Yeah. And I could certainly, uh, I could certainly feel you on that because I was in the orange bowl in 99 in that game uh, against UCLA. Um, You know, I don't think you were there at that time, but I was there sitting there in the stands and looking like, wow, uh, this is going to be a pretty bad end to the season if they don't get it together. I was caught between that and also the fact that I'd spent uh, the end of my high school days in California, and I'd seen enough UCLA football games to know that no one needs to be leaving the stadium. I've seen a movie like this before with UCLA, and thank God I stayed in my seat that day and watched a really, really great comeback. So I could certainly understand um, your feeling on that there was there one of the particular championships that you would hold Paris? Ooh. Well, I think when we lost to Penn State in mm-hmm. the Fiesta Bowl in January of '87, after that incredible uh, 1986 season where we went undefeated, mm-hmm. uh, we lost such a gut wrenching game, 14 to 10 to Penn State. I think. The next year, when we won the national championship in 87, which was the 88 Sugar Bowl, that probably yeah. had to be the most significant, yes, because mm-hmm. Jimmy had finally gotten the monkey off his back, and now we've won our second national championship. But I want to go back to something you just raised. Think about this for a second. How do you instill in a group of people, in any sport, in any, in any group, with any single-minded effort or endeavor, how do you instill in them we can't lose or we won't quit attitude? Think about that for a second. How do you get a group of people never to quit, to persevere? When you think about that, that was one of the aspects of the University of Miami with some of their more terrific comebacks. I've seen it exemplified in the New England Patriots. Coach Belichick, has a group of guys who won't quit. They never believe they're out of a football game. 
In fact, one of the most difficult things that you want to do is not just motivate someone Mm -hmm. to a certain goal or certain objective or have an achievement, but to believe that there's no reason ever to quit. I mean, look at this past year with the Patriots. They came back in the most incredible way in games they should have been out of and should have lost. Yeah, no no question. I think, you know, uh, confidence is obviously a big part of that. Success is also a big part of that. Um, and so, you know, the other part, um, those are just some of the intangibles of bringing together a certain group of guys at a certain time. Sometimes you just catch lightning in a bottle. And what made the University of Miami so um, unique is just the length of time at which you were able to continue bringing the right kind of players together and having that, all of them having that mindset. I guess one group led to another group doing that, but oftentimes you see that fail um, at a faster rate than what happened at the University of Miami. So um, I'd ask you this, of all the guys that have been there, and you had uh, such an intimate relationship with so many of the guys that came there, um, spoke to a lot of them, um, had personal relationships with them. Who's the most interesting character of all the guys you had to deal with at, at the University of Miami? Ooh, I don't think I could ever answer that question. Obviously, you have closer relationships with some rather than others. Um, I have officiated at nearly all the quarterbacks' weddings, believe it or not. Um, I've been involved in some of their funerals, unfortunately, baptized some of them, um, baptized their children, uh, Mm. have seen their children now grow like yours and Mm. excel um, on and off the field. And um, you get proud of them. I mean, having never had children, um, it's sometimes I look at my former football players, and I feel very possessive in that regard, that – I feel like in many ways they were my children. I'm justifiably proud of them, what they've made of their lives, like you. I mean, when you came from Long Beach State, you came into a program that had dropped football, hence you were able to step in and play at Division I football without waiting a year. And, you know, you stepped right into a starting position. That's how talented you were. But not just that. It wasn't just about talent. It was about fitting into a program where you adapted yourself right to it. I mean, you fit right in. Yeah, Not everybody is, can do that. True. That is that is true. And, then, you know, where there are a lot of things that were the same, there are a lot of things that were different. Once I came to the University of Miami, it's almost instant that I could see there was a difference in this program and the other program. And I'm not just talking about physical and athletic talent. It was just in the mentality and the attitude and how they went about things. And like I said, that had been established long before I got there, and it just – continued to thrive for so many years. Um, I just, like you, find that very interesting that that was allowed to continue to go on. So I want to touch on this since we're right now um, here in the studio watching the um, NFL Combine um, on, on my TV screen. And I know you've done some work in that area. And I find that, I did not know this before we spoke the other day. So I find that fascinating. I'm, I'm kind of over some of the physical testing um, that goes on here. Um, guys are so well prepared for it. 
Um, and I'm just not so sure that we can draw as much as we need to draw out of the physical testing. So two of the most authentic things I think that go down at the combine, the medical testing and then the interviews. And you have been a part of the interviews. What can you share with us about um, what you've learned over the years in doing interviews at the combine? That's, that's the question I enjoy answering the most. When Jimmy became the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, he looked around the room and all the assistant coaches plus the scouts were there, other staff personnel, the training staff, anybody that was going to be involved in the um, journey to the Indianapolis for the Combines to, to pretty much poke, prod, and question anybody that was going to be a potential draft choice for the Miami Dolphins. And he looked at me in front of everyone and said, Father Lee, he said, would you like to go with us? I'd like to have your input from people. I think I lost Father Leo here, and we'll try to get him back on. Um, but I would definitely want to get into that conversation with him, um, being at the combine, especially with the combine being now. I think so much is learned about these players, and I think very interesting um, outcomes come out of those interviews that take place um, at the combine. I think a good deal of that as I get Father Leo back on. Here I am. I lost you. Yeah, yeah I don't know how we got disconnected. Anyway. Yeah, so you were, you were saying um, he invited was, you to go out. Were you shocked when he asked you that? Absolutely. I was stunned. So the first year that I was there, I was primarily asking questions for the Dolphins. Later on, the NFL would videotape me as well as other representatives from the other 32 teams. A few select members would interview the potential draft choices for 10 minutes, and they would be videotaped by the videographer for each one of the NFL teams would supply one. So Usually I'd get a videographer from the 49ers or the Packers or someone like that. So they kept it pretty much balanced and fair. But one year I decided to ask a question. In fact, it was my second year that I didn't ask the previous year, and I asked ever since. And this is a very key question. They were always asking questions that you could find out from anybody at the school or the campus where that particular individual played football and went to school. But I decided I wanted to ask a question that other people weren't asking. So this was the question I asked. Give me an instance in your life when you faced a particular tragedy, something that broke your heart, almost broke your spirit, where you wanted to quit, you had no desire to go on. It's something that devastated you and so profoundly that it left a scar. Mm-hmm. I said, give me an instance of that, of that and what you did to handle it. That's a really I'm good question. Chad, I'm here to tell you. Are you ready for what I heard? Yes, lay it on. One guy drafted, terrific career, Pro Bowl player, one of the best defensive backs to play in the league, told me that he was in an automobile accident. Okay. His uncle was driving the car. And his uncle was decapitated in the automobile accident. He was sitting in the passenger seat. Yeah. Holy crap. No, no, no. No, it gets worse. 
Another one told me that he was molested by a youth minister in his in his church. Still another told me this is an interesting one. I, I have to be careful about this one because I'm very, very prudent about what information I pass out. But mm. this one individual set a record in his state for high school athletic competition. Mm. Now, when he was growing up, his father had left his mother, and so he never got to really know his father. And one day he's walking down the street with his cousin when he's in junior high, and his cousin says to him, hey, that was your father that just passed us. He said, what? Wow. He said, yeah. So he went back, grabbed a hold of the man's arm and said, excuse me, are you my father? And the guy literally blew him off. Well, this individual set a state record in a mm-hmm. track and field event when mm-hmm. he was a junior in high school. And he moved in with and he and his mother with her brother, his uncle. Mm-hmm. And one day when he was set to defend his title mm-hmm. as a senior for the event he had set the state record for before the year before, he gets mm-hmm. word that someone mistakenly showed up at the wrong house when his uncle opened the door. Somebody shot and killed him with a shotgun to the chest. Whoa. Whoa. That young that young man went out and competed and broke his record from the year before in the athletic event that he set the record the year before. All I could write down on my summary was one tough individual. There's nothing else you could write. Exactly. Uh, Wow. I mean, you're going to hear today the customary issues that happen in family. One of my parents is an alcoholic. They got a divorce. My father lost his job. I've lost a sibling in death. One of my parents died. I mean, those are are not atypical to hear from people today who are suffering. But when you Mm -hmm. hear something extraordinary as those I gave you, Mm -hmm. you look at the person and you wonder, how did you make it this far? And they will either – they'll they'll cite some some – It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, how I think a lot of times, I don't even know if that question, and it's a simple question, Leo, it really is a simple question that will give you some of the most dynamic answers. I'm sure you haven't even touched the surface on some of the answers that you, you, you've gotten, but these guys bring a lot of baggage with them, um, throughout life and trying to get to the NFL. And it could explain some of the things um, some of the behavior that gets exhibited. So I'm sure you exactly, like Chad, you're exactly right. So what happens with individuals who haven't had support systems? What happens with individuals who don't have people around them they can really trust for guidance, direction, those things? What happens to those people? So once money comes along, a significant amount of it, and no one is there to help them, understand its value or its purpose or its whatever, then you have a life that all of a sudden is now exponentially more difficult because people feel that their problems, personal and otherwise, don't need to be confronted or addressed. They can be substituted with for house, cars, whatever luxury or whatever addiction sure. they want to pursue. And, and, you, and this is interesting because – as 32 teams that are companies, they want to hire employees 
and pay them handsomely. But if you don't know the type of employee you're getting, if you don't know their ability to deal with issues, then they may not perform as well on the field because of all the problems they've gotten into off the field. That's why that's why there has been more of a there. Did you at any time um, come across someone um, during that interview and say to yourself, this guy right here is just not going to make it. And then it indeed turned out to be that way. Like, how, how often would that happen? <laughs> you, you've asked me the question that brings me the greatest sense of laughter. Um, mm-hmm. There was a person, there was a person who um, I was dead set against us ever, ever drafting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Sadly, unfortunately, uh, we did draft the individual, but wow. they never made the team. They never made the team, okay? So okay. it's funny because because Coach Johnson and I had a we had a, we had our laughter about this, and I mm-hmm. said, Coach, he's never going to make this team. And I remember distinctly, <laughs> I remember distinctly him laughing and kidding with me season started he wasn't on the roster <laughs> so i'm assuming him not being on a roster had something to do with um something oh, no, more no, mental than me. physical you know it was not me the person got himself in trouble which sure. i predict now, yeah. now think about this think think about this for a second you don't want just talented people you don't want mm. people that can just run the best 40s or you know put put up 225 pounds 40 times or get the get a perfect score on their wonderlick. We're not asking you to draft the Vienna Boys choir members, but at the same time, you want to minimize the risk because, as you said, those who have a lot of baggage. Well, I've met some that needed a sky cap because they had just so much. You couldn't right. possibly you couldn't possibly think about drafting them. I mean, you're thinking if, if you're talking about a first round draft choice, that's a mil, couple million dollar investment in an individual. Now, here's one of my favorite stories. This is, a, this is a good one. You're going to love this one. One year, I heard the story of a first-round draft choice mm-hmm. who, when he signed and got this tremendous bonus, he had gone to some, of the per, some person in the higher-level administration of a professional football team and asked him for a recommendation for a bank. So he gave him the list of a couple of banks, and one in particular, he happened to know the president, so the player chose that particular bank. Okay. He, went into the, he went in to see the bank president, believe this or not. He went to see the bank president, and they started talking about a savings account, a checking account, da 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 da, da. This, is, this was years ago. And mm-hmm. the player said, well, you know, I just want, I just want a savings account. Well, the bank president didn't understand it. He says, well, mm-hmm. do, do, how are you going to handle some, you know, what are you going to do for spending money? This is mm-hmm. what the guy said. Well, I was going to talk to you about that. I need $100,000 in cash. The bank president almost fell off his chair. Whoa, that's a lot of, he says, that's a lot of money. I, I'm not sure we can give you that. He said, well, I'll just take it in, in hundreds, fifties, twenties, you know, small denominations. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the bank president says, I'll tell you what, why don't you come back tomorrow? We'll see what we can do for you. Meanwhile, as that 
player, that new player, rookie, just just uh, uh, signs with the team. He goes goes back to the, the facility. The bank president calls up this guy who sent the player over there. He says, hey, want your player you just sent over here today just asked for $100,000 in cash. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to have a checking account. Really? So he waited a couple hours to go by. And the guy sauntered down from another part of the building and ran into this rookie, and he says, hey, how did things go at the bank today? Oh, fine. He said, great. He said, I really like that guy. He's really good. He's going to help me out tomorrow. I said, good. Tell me what's going on. He says, well, I asked him for some money, and this way, and I says, uh, yeah, he says, he, he called me, and he told me that you had a pretty good conference meeting and all so forth. He says, uh, but he said you didn't want a checking account. He said, no, no, I just want cash. He says, well, wh- how much did you ask for? He says, I asked for $100,000. He says, don't you think that's a lot of money? And he said, well, can I tell you something? And I said, and, he, and the guy said, well, what, what is it? He says, he didn't know how to write a check. Good Lord. But check, I mean, I'm not I mean, not, not unusual, but the, the, the way that he I couldn't, make this, I couldn't make this story up. I mean, I so possibly, I, I couldn't possibly what, make this story up. Well, I, I, the point was, how did he get this far in his education or even in his family life and never, ever used a check? Yeah, I don't even uh, know about but he, he just wanted cash. Well, the reason I say and set this up as an example is because this. Never presume that someone comes from the same field or meadow, the same house that you grew up in. Never presume that someone has the same tools, the same principles, the same instruments to deal with life. And each one is unique and different, rare. Presuming that everybody's the same or is going to react the same or respond the same is naive, unreal, not going to happen. That's why you have to get more and more selective, as NFL teams are doing. It's mm-hmm. not just about the medical issues or their time in the 40 or how much they can – it's not even their wonderlick test scores. It's what are their skill sets to deal with injury, with suffering, with loss, with any kind of obstacle, any kind of pain. What's their ability to recover? And you know as well as I do today, they're even looking into how many concussions a player has had as a collegiate athlete. Yeah, definitely, definitely all factors. Um, there's a lot of things to consider. I mean, would you want to be in back at the combine in this day and age? Is that something you would consider if you were ever approached? Well, I, I've talked to two teams about it that shall remain unmentioned. Uh, and, you know, it's it, 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 you have to have the ability to get someone to open up to you because there a lot of what I found out after a while is a lot of these uh, people I was interviewing were being schooled by their agents. Sure. They had the programmable response. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, and when I decided to throw a few curveballs and questions they weren't prepared for, you could, you could see that they were like, uh, 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 they, weren't, they didn't know what to say. Right. I mean, you can call up the strength coach at their particular college, university, their position coach, the trainer – and find out some background information on them. It's kind of you know, general information. But you really don't know how accurate or truthful that information is. 
But when you sit down with someone face to face and you look them in the eye and you ask them something more important than whether or not uh, they want to be a football player that learns visually or they want to be hands-on, you have to ask them questions that are much more personal. If you can get them to be open, you're probably going to have a better chance of saying that if you had to choose between this person and that person, take that person. I mean, I always say Tom Brady went in the sixth round. Nobody ever predicted that he was going to have his durability, his competitiveness. But look at this guy. He takes better care of his body than most people I know that do it for a living. Yeah, Tom Brady will be uh, – he'll, he'll definitely be studied. They'll go all the way back to the, the high school, the college. He's definitely someone that's going to be studied. How many – when you came on at the University of Miami, who was the head coach? Uh, Howard Schnellenberger. So you've been with Howard. You've been with Jimmy. You've been with Dennis. Did you, and you spent some time with Butch, correct? That's correct. Can you contrast those individuals for me? Um, what, what was the biggest difference between Howard and Jimmy? Well, all coaches have their own distinct personalities and, and qualities, uh, their own leadership styles, and their own pattern of how they coach. I would say, you know, ah. both of them were very successful at what they did. Long before Howard ever became the head football coach at the University of Miami, he was an incredible coach with the Los Angeles Rams on a terrific staff out there with George Allen and the the great years of the 60s with the Rams. And then he gets to be the offensive coordinator on one of the greatest coaches that has ever been on the sidelines, and Don Shula. He was already a highly seasoned coach because Mm. previous to that, he had been with Bear Bryant, Blanton Collier, so you add George Allen and Don Shula to the resume, that's a pretty extensive legacy of having been influenced by some of the better, well-known, and successful coaches in football, both on the collegiate and a professional level. So Howard instilled that type of football discipline and regimen that was by by far almost unrecognizable when he first got there. Jimmy was fortunate enough to inherit a group of football players at the University of Miami, and what he did was fine-tune it, especially where where there was a greater emphasis on speed, on defense. I mean, fortunately, there were members of that staff that Jimmy inherited also who kept that train on the track. They were Joe Brodsky, Gary Stevens. I that. interesting that you bring that up. Uh, Leo Amherst is uh, joining us here on the Gridiron Stud Show. Um, I read Jimmy's book, Turning the Thing Around, and uh, one of the distinct things I remember from reading in that book was, um, I think it was the initial uh, staff meeting that he had once he took over at the University of Miami, and uh, I, I do remember one thing in there where Gary was in the meeting, and he had, he had like his car keys there with him, and he kept jingling him, and it just bugged the living hell out of Jimmy Johnson, and he kind of almost sealed uh, Coach Stevens' fate right there. But uh, it was interesting that actually, he kept it. Was actually it wasn't Gary Stevens. It was a gentleman, uh, the defensive coordinator who had interviewed for the coach, Tom Alvinati. It was Alvinati, right? Yeah, he he re, 
and when Jimmy got hired, he resigned shortly afterwards and left the staff. And he was out of coaching for a while, uh, but it was he, not Gary. Yeah, Gary, I'm sorry. Well, Oliver Dottie, who, who actually played Little League with Tom Oliver Dottie's son, believe it or not. Yeah. It's wild, isn't it? And Small who, world. Who's coaching, who's coaching now in the NFL? <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't that something? So, um, yeah, I do remember saying that, but then, you know, retaining staff is, um, you know, a very difficult part of that whole transition process. I've watched um, both of my sons go through it, and while with my older son, the coach that came in, McElwain, retained a lot of the staff, Dan Mullen has come in now, and he's pretty much wiped the whole thing out. So um, it's interesting. I would ask you this. If had Howard not preceded Jimmy Johnson, do you think Jimmy Johnson would take in the University of Miami program from where it was when Howard got it and take it to where it ended up? Or did Jimmy really kind of need that framework that Howard put up to make things successful? Well, that, that, that's a hypothetical question. Uh, very difficult to answer. What if? Um, remember, the University of Miami was close to ending the entire football program, period. I mean, mm-hmm. if uh, Lou Saban doesn't come along, and he does an incredible job recruiting, especially with a guy we're all keeping in our thoughts and prayers right now, Jim Kelly, mm-hmm. getting him to come to the University of Miami and uh, – Howard was there to recruit him from Pennsylvania. That changed the entire program around, and we got very successful. I mean, it's funny. I once heard Belichick, Bill Belichick tell Jimmy Johnson that the NFL has become more of a quarterback-driven league. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's pretty much that way in college, too, if only sure. for the reason that most of the Heisman Trophy winners are college quarterbacks. Unless yeah. you're an outstanding running back, you probably – and wide receiver, you're not going to get the nod. Right. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Jim Kelly was as much responsible for putting that program on the map as was Bernie Kosar, Vinny Testaverde, Steve Walsh, Craig Erickson, Gino Toretta, uh, Kenny Dorsey. And you don't often hear that put that way. Um, you know, he's typically when people talk about the University of Miami, he was one of, um, but I've never quite, you know, heard that amount of emphasis put on on uh, Jim Kelly's fit into what happened at the University of Miami. So that's very interesting that you bring that up. I certainly, like I said in the outset, won't have enough time to hit everything on you, but I do want you to. Um, take a little bit of time to tell folks what you're doing now and also talk about the book that you've put out. Well, I'm, I'm retired now from the priesthood. I'm relaxing. I've got an herb garden in my backyard. I've decided that gardening is a great stress reliever. So today I was planting tomatoes, believe it or not, and eggplant in my garden in my backyard. I've got avocados. i got mangoes. i got all kinds of fruit trees. I love it. I got three English Bulldogs, Sir Walter Raleigh, we call him Raleigh, Cyrus the Great, and Miss Molly Malone. Miss Molly Malone belonged to a person, yeah, she was a rescue dog. She had gotten beat up and abused in Alabama, and I adopted her. Uh, So those are my three dogs. I still do a lot of counseling, a motivational speaking. 
Um, I now do interventions for drug and alcohol addiction. With the opioid epidemic that's all over this country, it keeps me quite busy. I wrote yeah, a book that I wrote a book called "Only the Wounded May Serve." It's on Amazon.com. It's a collection of stories and inspirational reading. I'll, you know, it's something that over the years I've accumulated all these stories and 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 just it, it, motivational things that. I really enjoy. So I put them in a book and essentially it is about life. Only the wounded may serve. None of us go through life free from wounds or scars or suffering or pain and embracing and accepting those makes you a stronger person. So that's essentially what it is. No, that, um, and, and that is very true. I found that out. I've got some years on me now. Um, and I found that to be, um, exactly true. No one goes through life um, down a merry stream. Um, so, yeah, definitely being able to embrace adversity, um, at least it, I found that in my life to be able uh, to be a big key to success because whether you want it or not, the adversity is coming. So um, I'm going to have to check out that book and, and uh, get to some reading. Listen, it's been a tremendous pleasure having you on. Um, I wish we had more time. We're going to have to bring you on. Uh, again, hey buddy, I like that. Hey, you never, yeah. you never asked me. You never asked me the one obvious question. Who Which was, was the best person I? Who was the best person I ever interviewed in Indianapolis? I would figure that to be a very difficult question for you to answer. But if you have an answer, by all means, I want to hear it. Are you, are you sitting down? I'm definitely without sitting. Compar- without comparison. Without comparison, he's at the top, and everyone else is considerably lower. Really? His name wow. is his name is Warwick Dunn. Wow. I know. You know, it, I was right back to like to tell you. For me to, for, for me to say that a Florida State for me to say that a Florida State football player was the greatest interview I ever had, I am so proud to say that because he's one of the finest human beings I have ever met in my life. You know, and I would, I would say this, even the most staunchest change fan um, would have respect for Warwick Dunn. He's just someone I don't care what kind of battles um, your team had against him and how many different ways he may have broken uh, your team's heart. You have respect for Warwick Dunn. Oh, he, he's a class act. When he, when he went to the Atlanta Falcons and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and whenever the Dolphins played them, either in preseason or regular season, he would come over before the game and ask me to give him a blessing. He was wow. one of the most and remains one of the most incredible human beings I've ever had the privilege to meet. Yeah, um, good th- I can I certainly see that. But to have one person stand out like that, that says a whole lot for Warwick Dunn. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And that continues to be the case. Um, if you look at all the things that he's done for uh, folks in his, uh, in his hometown, South Sandy. Yep. Yeah, so listen. It's again, I got to add you on. There's, there's so many topics that uh, we can cover. I definitely need to bring you back on. Not a problem. Not a problem. All right. Well, thank God you very much. Check out that book. I will definitely do that. All right, that was Father Leo Amherst joining us here on the Gridiron Stud Show. Um, I'm sure he's got a wealth of stories that he could um, share with us. Just not enough time to get them all. 
Um, you know, doing interviews at the combine has to be um, one hell of an experience. And, you know, you can't write a book about it, but I'm sure anyone who's been through that certainly has a lot um, that they can tell. And it certainly seems like Father Leo falls in that category. All right, well, it's Friday, so we've got to hit the road here. I want to thank you, uh, all of you, for listening in and joining in on the show here. I hope you got um, a bunch out of this. And if you're listening to the archive version and you have a question or a comment, Feel free to leave it here, and uh, I do see the comments later. But, again, I appreciate all of you for listening to the show. Enjoy your weekend. We're back next week. Gridiron Set Show. Thank you.
might be the weakest show I've done in years. Weak as all hell. Oh my god. Well, no, his stories are fine. Just me, I suck. Now I got people walking in and out of the crib left and right. Shit's a ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's retarded, man. Like, is everyone going to come in here today? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a show. No one here all day. I come, I go to do a show. Quincy come in here with his girlfriend and her and her cousin. Carmen going in and out of the garage. <coughs> Then Marco shows up. I'm like, damn, who, who else comes? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, shit is crazy. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, I gotta. Yeah, I gotta get it on. <coughs> I gotta get it on the frame. Hold on, my friend. Yeah, or you can uh, get like uh, all those uh, things on set. Uh, <clears throat> now I already ordered a frame for it, so it's gotta it's gonna fit around the uh, frame, and I can maneuver it how I want. Uh, uh, yeah, this right here, I just I put it up on the wall because the frame ain't come yet. Yeah, that's cool though. <clears throat> so that'll work. I just gotta. Not have a weak ass show. I mean, come on, dude. Like, first of all, if that's inevitable, you're not going to always have something great to talk about. So that. Yeah.
That might be right. I gotta find the right time. Yeah. I know when I did the recruiting show is always a big draw, but I I ain't gonna just keep having recruiting shows. Changes. They're making changes. Like what? 
they just, they're doing some kind of changes to their policy and all kind of bull. But what about the YouTube channel? Yeah. Yeah. 
right. You're right. That's something I think I'm going to experiment with, see how it goes. Yeah. I don't know. You can kind of do all that stuff yourself now these days, but.
Let me just uh, start the Donald's conversation. Uh, where do you stand on his bowling against Ohio State, where you had a front seven and a coordinator that uh, could mimic the NFL as well as anybody at that level, right? Ohio State. And so, yeah. so and, and I know USC's front uh, uh, line up front was 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 uh, subpar, decimated, however you want to put it. But where do you stand on Donald's performance on that as an evaluator and coming in? Yeah, I look at it as one game amongst many, and, and I don't overdo that one game. That The Ohio State front was way better than his front, and Greg Schiano did a heck of a job. Okay, we, we're going to go to break because uh, Saquon Barkley is standing by. Uh, someone who I think should be the next New York football giant. I'm flat out. I'm flat out. I'm just dropping it all right now. <laughs> oh, my God. See, I could say these things. He, he won't. He can't. But when we come back, a guy jumped out of this building and had a terrific combine. Sit on Barkley when we come back. Join T-Mobile and a whole family stay connected with new iPhones, which is great. Who has your parents on your study? Are you this week? Something. 
primary voting is I voting on us. And for a limited time, bring your family to T-Mobile and get a board line free. Only at T-Mobile. So you're all having car insurance issues. Mostly those two. As if we called you because we all need affordable car insurance.
uh, didn't have really any benefits coming along with me. So it was a lot of football talking, uh, getting to know a little bit of my family background, just a little bit of that, but got to go on the board and talk about six-man protection, and talk about what I see, what I saw in this uh, film play, and so on and so on. So how did you feel like you did on the pass protection stuff? Uh, yeah, I think I think I did really good. Uh, I felt really comfortable with that. Um, and I had college, uh, my, my coach, Coach Hub, uh, really installed it to all the running backs so that you have to do that at the next level and prepare yourself. So when I got there, just talking football was nothing to me. So who did you interview with? Uh, I interviewed with the Giants, um, the Jets, Colts, Buccaneers, 49ers, and the Broncos. You gotta say the word Browns unless people in Cleveland gonna have a heart attack. The Browns did not sit you down. Say, oh, I talked to the Browns. Okay. You know, uh, everyone, sure. Everyone had different strategies, but you know. So I just my my mindset was I did a lot of informals too. My mindset was treat every coach like that could be the coach that drafts you because you never know within four or five years you could be a free agent one day and you want to leave a lasting impression on the coach. Is it a true story that you once uh, thought about playing for the Jets? Did I hear that kind of podium this week? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm a Jets fan now. I'm pretty neutral right now. Okay. I'm a fan from the Jets, but growing up my whole life, I've been a Jets, a Jets fan. Uh, my dad has a Jets tattoo right here, too. So, you know. Wow. Okay, well, you don't want your dad to remove that, right? I mean, <laughs> no, that'd be, no, wherever I go, my dad's out to going to follow. But he's still going to be a Jets fan. <laughs> now, so I can't take that away from him. Uh, but I was born in the Bronx. Uh, my dad lived in the Bronx in New York for at least 35 years of his life, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. and obviously we moved to P at a young age, but I kind of, kind of followed me. When I was two years old, my dad always said that uh, other kids were playing around, like playing with toys or whatever, at a young age, and I was attached to a sip by some Jets games, so I'm very familiar with a lot of Jets running backs, like Curtis Martin and the Thomas Jones era, uh, Leon Washington, cool. uh, Mark Sanchez, and all those guys. Well, I mean, you know, and obviously Blair Thomas before you, if you want to make a connection to uh, Penn State, to the uh, hashtag we are, which, by the way, James Franklin tweeted at me uh, when I uh, put on your stats out there uh, on Twitter. And in, in that respect, uh, I mean, going to uh, Penn State and your experience and what you, you did there and bring it to the next level, playing in that environment, how, how do you think that has prepared you for what's to come? percent preparing me for this moment, you know. Uh, you come to college and the way we work at Penn State, you know, we do a lot of similar things that put you in a position here for time on and uh, you grind, you grind it. That's the mindset that we had. Obviously we went through a little struggle over there with a couple of sanctions and had rebounds. So uh, the way we had to rebound was work and push each other and so just that's all I know is come through and uh, focus on my work ethic. You know, at the end of the day, if you come and you work hard no one can take that from you. So Coach Franklin, Coach Call, Coach Wilson, Coach Hoff, all so on, so on, there's so many so many people there from the coaching staff, the strength staff, to the academic staff uh, that have sh- shaped me to the man I am today and uh, helped me for this moment, not only on the field, but in this awesome. Well, let's walk you through just uh, for a couple more minutes before, uh, and as I know you're, you'd like to get out of Dodge. Let's take a look. 225. What do you think right there when you see that 29? Uh, I got to like 19, and in my head I was like, you got to get 30. You got to get 30. Uh, I got pretty close. I got to 29, uh, which I got 30. Uh, my 40, the first one, I kind of got a little, little messed up because uh, the way I was practicing, you were able to get to take all it up and with your leaf, but I had to back up. Mm-hmm. Right. I fixed it the second time and I came out and stumbled, but uh, I definitely like my second half better my 40. Here, I wanted to show that I'm natural catching the ball. You know, a lot of people think a 230 pound back can't catch the ball flowing. I want to show that I put a ball on the ground, whether it's a deep ball or a corner, uh, track the ball you know, with my head. Yeah, well, uh, Saquon, look, 
Uh, it's been um, it's been fun watching you uh, play at the, at the previous level. Uh, and speaking on behalf of all those who uh, you know root for uh, a team outside of uh, Penn State, the Big Ten, we're very glad that you're going to the next level. <laughs> Good luck to you at that next level. Hey, great day today, man. Good luck. Okay, yeah. thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me. You got it, Saquon Barkley. Uh, thanks very much. We'll see you on NFL Total Access tomorrow and out there in Los Angeles. Whenever you want, stop on by. Uh, stop on by. You bet. That's Saquon Barkley right here live on NFL Network. He's going to be on Total Access tomorrow. Okay, so he did more reps than Joe Thomas. He had a better 10-yard split than Deshaun Jackson. His 40-yard dash faster than Devin Hester. And his vertical jump higher than Julio Jones. That's all. And his attitude, uh, I'm being humble, second to none, right? Work ethic. I've known a bunch of people up there at State College. They've been talking about this kid for years. As much off the field yep. for his positive attributes as said on the field. I'll say one more time. New York football. He's from the Bronx. I'm serious. I mean, he knows the area. His family knows the area. He's comfortable in the area. Uh, I mean, uh, again, and I know, you know, these are all situations. Bob, that I did not know his great uncle was Iron Boy. I was going to add, but I did not. Yeah, his great uncle and his father was a boxer also. So there's a heavy boxing background in this. So, look, and I know you, you have said you can't do it for the fan base. You've got to focus in on X, Y, and Z about. Uh, long term for the future. That said, you 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 have to you you have to focus in on a fan base. And last July there he is with Odell Beckham. Imagine that is how you get the Giants fans back in the house after a dreadful season where many of them were pissed off at how Eli Manning was handled and how Eli Manning was installed back in Mike because, and hear me out here, their final three games were at home. Uh, their final three home games were all against division opponents. And so the Giants do think in the back of their head or at the frontal lobe about how the fan base would react. And now Cleveland could spoil the part and just take that kid first overall, which I think would set us on edge or, or over the edge on, on draft night if that happened, leaving the quarterback there and sending everything on the draft board uh, elsewhere. But he's terrific in every aspect. And to team him up with Odell Beckham for Eli Manning's dotage years makes complete sense to me. And I know it's sense to me. And you're a fan. And I, and I right. want that and I get that. All I'm saying, and I'm not saying he's not the right guy. Sure. He very well might be the perfect guy. And I might be banging the table by April. Okay. All I'm trying to say is the door has to stay open for two reasons. Number one, the quarterback thing has to be looked at ad nauseum. And I hate to say it, but if they believe there's a franchise 10-year quarterback in this draft, okay, but you better believe in that franchise quarterback because which one do you think would fit the Giants? I would say one of those two can be available on too. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And again, it's early in the sure. They don't know the kids yet. Okay, Saquon Barkley, and I think the, and I'm on record as saying the two best football players in this draft 